I mean, maybe I don't know all of the numbers that are on the pro forma, but the story should tell me something that makes sense when I'm looking at the numbers too. But it's really important. Welcome to the Get Real Podcast. Your high-octane boost of full-on reality therapy for personal, business, and investing success with your host, Ron Phillips, because somebody's got to tell it like it is. Welcome back to the Get Real Podcast. Ron Phillips here with Heather Marchant. Hey, everyone. She was gone last week, everybody. I know all of you were missing Heather last week. <laughs> so hard. So hard. Everybody needs, everybody needs a little bit of time off of, from some things. And Heather had a little bit of time off last week because she was working. But, I mean, she was still time off, right? <laughs> Time off from recording with you. Time off from this particular show. Not really time off at all. So (laughs) we really appreciate you guys. I mean, I say that every time, but we just got some numbers from the guys who run our podcast. And I mean, I think if I told you what they were, you wouldn't believe me. I didn't believe them. I I didn't believe it. (laughs) I didn't believe them. I'm like, did you look at somebody else's show? Are you sure? That's... (laughs) What ours is. Anyway, guys. Yeah, because we're just like regular old people, man. We're just like, I mean, I I talk to clients all the time and share this on a one-on-one basis. And I've loved having the podcast for a voice that I can record and explain a concept for 30 minutes and I can Mm -hmm. send it to them. I send this out to my clients and answers to their questions all the time. Super helpful. And I have talked to some people because I was raising some money for a syndication I'm doing. And I got on the phone with some of the people and they're like, oh my gosh. Like, well, they're talking to a celebrity. I'm like, oh, I'm just, I'm just such a dude. This is not, <laughs> and then, and then I got those numbers last week and I was like, oh my, okay, well, this thing is actually connecting with folks. So anyway, long story short, thank you so much. We appreciate you guys sharing. Appreciate your comments, your questions so that we can keep this show, you know, not only relatable to everybody who's listening, but also really geared towards you specifically, right? So that we're delivering the information that you guys want in a real way, in a, in a get real way. Yeah. Um, today, we're going to talk about what I just did. Not really. I mean, we're not really going to talk about my syndication, but we're going to talk about syndications because we had a ton of questions about these. Yeah. They're all the rage right now. I mean, I think literally everybody in the speaking circuit right now is teaching people how to do syndications. I think that must be because literally I'm bombarded with them constantly. Everybody is doing syndications. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of a concept if you want to own something big rather than, you know, a single family home, or if you wanted to get into real estate and it seems overwhelming to take any phone calls or have any issues, right? So it's kind of a perfect blend for some investors who don't really want to even be a real estate investor owning remotely with a property manager, but, you know, want to be even more removed, right? I mean, if you're a little work averse yeah. like me, then, you know, these are, these are really, they're really great. But some people get confused. Like the word syndication is just like, yeah. I mean, that, some people are like, what the heck is that? You know, mm-hmm. people think about syndicates and things like that. I Like I think of, I don't know why, but I think of like mob movies, right? These uh, crime syndicates and things like that. Anyway, that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today, but I do have some really cool friends in the crime world crime world in the crime stopper world and they have a podcast i should i should just have them on one of these times it has absolutely nothing to do yes it does it's a business (laughs) i should have them on and we should talk about their business because man their podcast has blown up and it's so much fun these guys are old cops man and they just they tell these stories Um, it's really cool podcast anyway that's completely off topic but syndications have nothing to do with 
usually they have nothing to do with crime. Yeah. Most of the time they have nothing to do with crime. I, they have I everything to do with. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they do, but you hope that it wasn't your money that was in them and yeah. et cetera. Anyway, syndications, basically it's a fancy word for a private placement. And what a private placement is a fancy word for an SEC regulated private fund that doesn't have to go through the SEC. There's a carve out exemption that almost all of these guys use. And that carve out exemption makes it so they don't have to go get approval from the SEC. Generally, that is because they are not advertising like mine. I didn't advertise. I went to people that I know. So, you know, my clients and, and folks that I have a relationship with and only offer it to accredited investors. And so that gives the sponsor an, an out, so to speak, right? As this carve out exemption so that they don't have to go and get approved through the SEC. Still SEC regulated. So I have a question on that. Why does the SEC care? A lot of people think that a syndication is actually real estate, but it's not. Because yeah. when I create a, a syndication, what I'm doing is I'm creating some form of a business. Mm -hmm. The last one I just did was a general partnership and a that had limited partners and general partners. And that's a business. So mm -hmm. when I sell shares of that business, it's not, I'm not selling real estate to somebody. I am selling yeah. shares of a business, which I mean, that's like, it's kind of like an IPO, right? Except for it's not public. It's not an initial public offering. It's a private offering of this company. And this company happens to own real estate <laughs> or is going to own real estate, right? Yeah. But that's why the SEC is involved because it, this is a security. So it's yeah. regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. And typically, like if I wanted to create a fund and be able to advertise and, you know, I mean, people are seeing them, crowdfunding sites all over the place and things like that. Well, those people have gone through the SEC, paid an attorney, and they've gone through the SEC and they've gotten approval. That's a little bit different than um, what most of the people that you guys would see out there. Most of them are working under mm. one of the exemptions. That's what I do. I work under one of the exemptions. And so that allows me to be able to raise money from people that I know and in a private offering and only to accredited investors. So you would be like the general partner. Is mm -hmm. that right? And then the people that invest in it are limited partners. That's correct. Okay. So talk to us more about a, what a limited partner means. So it's, it's actually kind of neat. A general partner, limited partnership, the limited partners are limited to whatever they put in. So their losses are limited to whatever they put in. So if somebody invests $100,000, that's their skin in the game, right? If So if the thing goes down, they lose $100,000. The general mm -hmm. partners are the ones who go out and get the financing. They're the ones who run the project and they're the ones who control how everything is done. Limited mm -hmm. partners, they don't really have any say in how things operate. They don't have control. The general partners do. But they also have limited exposure, right? The general yeah. partners have significantly more exposure than the limited partners do. Because um, what's your risk as the general partner? Sorry, this is really helpful because I get these questions all the time and I have you. Yeah, active. no worries. Well, I'm signing my name on the loan, number one, right? Mm -hmm. So if we default, I don't just lose $100,000. I'm, I'm on the hook for however many million dollars the loan is. And, and if I'm the only general partner, then I'm it, right? I'm the guy on the hook for the whole deal. You know, any kind of potential legal issues that would come up, they would hit the general partners, is my understanding from my attorneys, right? Not the limited partners. So there's a lot more. You know, we take all of the precautions to make sure that kind of thing doesn't happen. But still, you know, the general partners are the ones who have the most risk. Limited partners have 100% risk of whatever they put in. So yeah. you can limit your risk by limiting the amount of shares you buy, right? 
Okay. That's really cool. Okay. So what type of properties do you usually, or, or do you people usually have in a syndication? Yeah. So you'll hear value add a ton. Hmm. I mean, a ton in the apartment world anyway. There are, there's a, there's a ton of different kinds of funds out there. You, you know, there's commercial funds, there's I think that only do commercial properties. And there, then there's niches inside of commercial properties. And one of those niches is apartments, which is what I do. That's typically what I see because that's the world I'm in. But there are a lot of other ones out there. People do office, people do industrial, people do all kinds of things. But in the apartment world, you'll hear a lot of different, a lot of different types of properties, apartment buildings you'll hear a value add a lot because a value add property is one that it has some proper, it has some problems, but it's generally operating. Hmm. There just is an opportunity through either operations or increased, you know, you can do upgrade the units and then get more rents. And then in so doing, you can increase the value of the property, hence the value add, right? You can do new construction. So you do a new, completely new development where you're building from the ground up. And there's several of those. You can also do what you would consider to be a rehab, some kind of a distressed property where the thing is either vacant or almost vacant and it needs a ton of work. We just looked at one that was in environmental court, meaning the city has gotten involved now and said, hey, owner, we're taking you to court now. You have to clean this thing up um, Uh because it's an environmental hazard. And then when you're working with environmental court, obviously that's a distressed property. You have to go in and and you have to comply with what the court mandates that you do to the property, at least that. So there's all these different types of properties. So you're get, basi- it's basically like a business that you're going to try to clean up the expenses, bring up the income, right? Make the math better for the business. Yeah, except for in the new development, right? So in the distressed property, you're doing the same thing, except for there's generally no financials because it's vacant or almost vacant. And the, the financials aren't going to support a loan anyway. So it's a distressed property. Mm-hmm. In a value add, that's absolutely what you're going to do. You're, you're going to try to decrease expenses, increase income, affect change to the net operating income of the property. And you know, since the value of the property is based on the net operating income of the property, you've affected however much yeah. change based on what you've done with the net operating income. Right. Yeah, that's one of the coolest things about commercial real estate that you don't have with residential is you have the ability, if you can show that it makes more money, it's worth more money. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I deal with rental properties all the time on the residential side where all I just got a single family home in that is a hundred thousand dollars and it can rent for like twelve fifty. And that's ridiculous, but they can only sell it for so much because you have to rely on what the houses in the area are worth. Where an yep. apartment like the sky's the limit, so to speak, right? I mean, you make it make more money than you make more money when you sell it. That's pretty cool. It's the coolest thing to me. And you can force appreciation on a property. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's really, really cool. I don't um, think many investors understand that unless they've been in that space, you know? So that's really cool. Yeah. So talk to us about who can do these. You said accredited investor. What's Yeah, that? now that's just for the ones who are in the carve-out exemption. Right. So if the person is using rule 501, so it's called 501 reg D, right? Regulation D. If you look at that particular carve out exemption, I'm not necessarily advertising, right? I'm going to, to people that I know that I'm verifying are accredited investors. And, and in that scenario, the only people who can invest are accredited investors because that's the exemption that I'm using. But if I go and get like, if, if I go and I say, I'm going to create a hundred million dollar fund to go buy apartment buildings and I go through the SEC and I, and I get the SEC's blessing. Well, now I can advertise because you'll, you'll hear some of these on the radio. You'll hear some of these on TV where they're actually 
advertising, right? They're buying. It's a whole different ballgame, right, than what I play in and what most of my friends play in. We are playing in the accredited investor world. That means to be an accredited investor, you have to make over $200,000 over the last couple of years. And you have to, you know, reasonably think you're going to continue to do that as an individual or $300,000 as a couple. Mm. And or have a million dollars of net worth, not including your personal residence. That makes you an accredited investor. And some people are like, well, but I know people who meet that and they don't know anything about investing. And I know tons about investing and, you know, yeah. that may be, but that's the definition. So there's nothing we I can do about it, right? I didn't make the definition. The SEC did. And I'm certainly not going to get into a battle over it. <laughs> so people that are accredited or believe they're accredited, what information do you ask for in a syndication to show proof that they're accredited? Yeah, people should be able to know whether they make $200,000 a year or not. They have to like send in their tax tax documents, like their tax it, returns? It really, it, it really depends. Most of the people that I'm talking to, I know. And so I don't make them continually send me in documents. But if you're if you're not advertising, but if you're talking to people that you don't know, you have to find out whether or not they're a, an accredited investor, right? You can't make them an offering unless you know that they are. Okay. So, so I mean, it's reasonable to assume if somebody tells you that they are, then, that you can talk to them. But when it comes down to documents, they have to be able to sign something that is affirming that they are accredited investor or they have to prove it. Okay. And I've heard different things from different SEC attorneys. I don't think it's one way is necessarily the... And, and I should say, I'm not an attorney, right? So when we start talking about the legal things, I usually call my SEC attorney. That's the way you stay out of jail. I'm not made for jail, so um, I like to stay out of jail. Anyway. <laughs> it is more fun that way. More, and yeah. you won't, you won't, your friends won't I'm, have to uh, know you on the uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not made for jail, so <laughs> we won't go in there. So yes, I, I usually, any kind of a question about any of that stuff, I call my attorney and ask them. Yeah. Any emails I send out, anything like that, I always check with my attorney first, make sure I'm not screwing up my exemption, right? Yeah. Really, really important. So as far as some important, I guess, questions to ask general partners, you know, when you're looking into one of these syndications. So like understanding deal structure, but understanding their strategy, right? So what are you doing with the property, right? Would make a lot of sense to me how you already said, right? Like, well, if we're going to make it perform better, it's already rented. This is our strategy of how we're going to do it. Here's, you know, the plan rather than just shooting. Yeah. From and I think so even before that, I think the most important thing, and I've, I've told this to everybody who's, well, I've had tons of questions now over the last week, it took me about a week to raise the, the money that we needed. And I had several questions about this. Like, what, what do I, what have I not asked you that I should ask you? And that's a, that's a really good question. Well, I think the most important thing when you're looking at a syndication of any kind with anybody is the general partners. That's mm -hmm. the most important piece of the whole deal. Because if the general partners don't know what they're doing, or if when you vet them, you find some nefarious things in their background, man, you should, I mean, the people who are in control, because remember, the general partners are the people in control. They're the ones who have the authority to sign on everything for this venture, right? They're the people who can in debt property. They, they can, they're the people who do everything. They pick the property management company, they do everything, right? For the property. Now they also maintain a lot of the liability, like I said, but, but it's really important to vet those people. It's really important to understand who it is that is gonna be controlling this project, what their background is, what they know about this, uh, you know, is it their first syndication? It's not that everybody had their first syndication at one point, but 
was it their first syndication because they just came out of a seminar or mm -hmm. is it their first syndication and they've been doing real estate for, you know, 15, 20 years and they've done thousands of transactions. They just decided, Hey, I'm going to start doing syndications in addition to the rest of my holdings. What are their experience? Who are these people? Yeah, that is really, really important. The most important thing in, in my opinion, when mm -hmm. you're looking at a syndication, way more important than the deal. That makes a lot um, of sense. Cause you, there's a lot of quick online searches you can do, you know? to look at. Yeah. We have so many, the, so much ability, I guess, now in our day and age to be able to research crap on someone, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> really yep. heavy, intense. So, and you'll hear, you'll also hear the general partners called sponsors as well. So don't get confused. It's a sponsor is, is that's there's those terms are kind of, they'll, they'll use those in place of one another all the time. Sponsor mm -hmm. is the same thing as a general partner. And, and, you know, some of these don't even have general partner, lim limited partner structures. Some of them have classes of shares inside of the inside of an LLC, right? So you can have class A shares, class B shares, and they don't ever talk about general partners and limited partners, but it's basically the same thing. You have a class that is the quote general partner class or the manager class, and you have other shares that are not manager shares. So in effect, it's, it's similar, right? But whoever it is that's managing this thing, whether it's a general partner or a manager or whatever it is, they're the sponsor. Hmm. That makes sense. I'm glad you clarified that. So what are some other important questions that people should ask when they're looking at a syndication? Yeah, I think the next thing is what you were alluding to before, which is what's the story? There's a story behind every one of these deals. At least yeah. there should be. I mean, there should be a story. Right. And the, and the story should include the future position of the, of the story. So there should be a backstory. There should also be a front story, right? There should be something forward facing that says what they're going to do to the property. But in order to know that they have to understand like what happened to the property? Why is it the way that it is? There should be some kind of a story to this deal, how it came about, how they found it, how like all of that stuff. I, I like to understand because the story, and maybe this goes back to my buddies who run this cool podcast, <laughs> the crime podcast. <laughs> but he would tell me all the time, he's like, look, you just keep asking uh, information about the story because if it's a lie, it changes, right? If it's a lie, the story changes. That's why cops, like on any cop show you ever watch, right? Any, any kind of crime drama, they keep asking the people over and over and over. And then they go, oh, well, I, that's funny because I never said anything about this. Or yeah. that's weird because you just said that you were over here during that time. Same thing happens with these because these all have stories. And if someone has done due diligence, then the story is the story. The story doesn't change generally, right? And yeah. if it did change, there should be a plausible explanation as to why it changed, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. So, I like to get the story because then when I actually look at the numbers or the front story, like how are we going to fix this thing? It should make sense with the backstory. Mm -hmm. And all of this seems really I mean, there's not, there's not any formula. I have a lot of people who are like, yeah, just give me the formula for how I should vet a deal. I'm like, well, I don't know, because the way that I do it is I have this BS meter and, and the BS meter starts going off if the story doesn't match what's being said over here. Mm -hmm. And then if in the storyline doesn't match with the numbers that I'm being told, well, then that's a whole other problem, right? Mm -hmm. So all of those three things have to match somehow. I should be able to put this together in my head. And it shouldn't be so complicated that I can't figure it out. I mean, maybe I don't know all of the numbers that are on the pro forma, but the story should tell me something that makes sense when I'm looking at the numbers too. But yeah. it's really important. 
Well, we've looked at an apartment deal together just in the last week. And sometimes the story is in the numbers, but you want to confirm like, well, why? Um, When we looked at recently, they had a ton of overhead expenses, tons. They had on-site management for like, I think it was a 24 unit that we were looking at. It was absurd. It was ridiculous. They had like a whole maintenance like crew that was on salary (laughs) to do maintenance on a 24 unit building. Right. So sometimes you can see the story in the numbers, but asking more questions and understanding like, yeah. And don't ask leading ones. Just ask for the story. Right. Because if the person who is, and this is different, right. If I'm talking to a broker, I'm going to ask different questions than I am of a sponsor because a sponsor at the point where they're raising money, like my deal that I was raising money for last week, that deal, I have already been on site. We've already inspected it. We've done all of our due diligence. We are almost at the end of the loan process. Like we're almost done. I should know, right? When Mm -hmm. somebody should ask me a question, I should know the, Mm -hmm. the, unless it's some off the wall crazy question. And then I'll go, well, I'll go find out. But if it has anything to do with due diligence or the numbers, I should know by now what that is. Yeah. And if I don't, hopefully my partner knows, or, you know, somebody on the team knows, right? Somebody, I should just know that stuff. At least I should have access to it in my documents. If you're asking me a question and you want a specific amount, I should be able to look it up and get it for you. Right. I just think that's why I think the story is so important because like you were saying, Heather, if if I'm looking at 24 units and they're spending money on payroll, I need to know why they're doing that. Yeah. I mean, what are they doing with payroll? There's no payroll on 24 units. Like, were you paying yourself? Like, that's what I wondered. Like, were you using this to get a W-2 for yourself? Sometimes that's that's exactly what they're doing. Sometimes it is. And sometimes it's a piece of a much larger portfolio. And they're just putting percentages of these things on each one of the properties. And when you're, when you're selling one, well, you have to know that like the one that we, that I was just raising money for, I mean, that property had almost $200,000 and it was 92 units, only, almost $200,000 worth of payroll expense, mm-hmm. which is two times what it needs to be. It doesn't need to be that much. Right. Mm-hmm. And when we were on site, well, there were five human beings there. There only needs to be two. There were five. One of them was a uh, housekeeper. I just turned to the on site people and I said, what does a housekeeper do? <laughs> Because this is not a hotel. Yeah. It's not a hotel. So what does the housekeeper do? Oh, she cleans the turn units. I'm like, well, how many turns do you have? I mean, these are natural questions you would ask. I mean, because are you renting them by the week? What are we (laughs) doing here that requires a... a, Anyway. (laughs) That is funny. when someone asks me and they're looking at the trailing 12, which shows $200,000 and I'm showing $98,000, I need to be able to articulate as a sponsor why. Mm-hmm. Why is that getting cut by a hundred thousand dollars? Why is that? Yeah. And if you ask me, I can tell you because I've already done the due diligence and everything on the property. So anyway, those are very long drawn out way to explain why you need this story. But I think that's really important because I think people skip over that, go to the numbers. Numbers may make sense, but if they don't make sense with the story, then there's a problem. Yeah, for sure. And that should raise a red flag and you should ask more questions. And then when your gut tells you something's not right here, you should bolt. Yeah, I agree. And I guess one of the last things that we haven't talked about is making sure you understand the market where the property is located, right? Yeah, as best you can. Yeah, about the area. Or or goes back to the sponsor. They should be able to explain the market to me, right? And I should be able to verify what they're explaining to me. Because in in the pitch deck or the offering memorandum, 
I should get tons of data from about the area and I should be able to Google any of that stuff. You know, if they tell me that there's 1500 jobs coming because Amazon's opening a shipping facility near this, I would think I should be able to find that on Google. I mean, I would think I could find that on Google. And if I can't, then I I need to ask for some verification. There's 1500 jobs coming. (laughs) Yeah. That's true. Don't just take the person's word for it. I mean, it doesn't take very long to do that due diligence yourself. It really really doesn't. doesn't. I think people think it's a lot bigger than it is. You know, I have clients that get overwhelmed by due diligence that those two words are like, oh, I have to have a, you know, a part-time job. I'm like, no, it's not. I guess you can do as much as you want, but you don't have to spend a long time verifying who the general partners are and who the property managers will be on the ground and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. And that, that comes right with, with the sponsors comes their team. Mm-hmm. You should bet all of those people. You should know who's on the team and if they actually have a team or they're trying to, you know, cobble one together last minute or something. And everybody on the team should have some experience in whatever role that they're, that they're doing. One of the other things I think that people get really confused about is cap rates because of the way that cap rates are reported on offering memorandum and people's understandings of them, they often get really confused. And I'm going to try to explain this so that people don't get confused, but a, a capitalization rate or a cap rate is basically the valuation tool of a property. It gives you your return without debt. So it's based just on the net operating income. So like as if you paid cash, yeah? Yeah. And here's the crazy thing. When I'm looking at properties all the time, you've seen some of these, mm-hmm. they have the debt service in there and then they say that net operating income is after debt service, but that's not right. And sometimes they'll have the net operating income and then they'll have taxes and insurance below the line. Well, taxes and insurance are an expense. They go above the line. That's not really a net operating income. So when you're looking at the numbers, you need to look at those and make sure it's a true net operating income. And then the capitalization rate is simply the same thing as your return on investment, your cash return on investment without debt. Yeah. So no loan. if I'm buying a property, I don't want a low cap rate. Now, somebody's going to say, yeah, you, you, you want a low cap rate because it gives you more money when you sell. Well, that's true. But that's a valuation cap rate in the market. That's kind of like if my house is worth a million dollars and the one down the street is worth 1.2, you know, they'll average those out. What's the same thing in commercial properties they use cap rates, price per unit and things like that, right? Well, the cap rate is that valuation. So if most of the C-class properties are trading at a 7% cap rate in the area, well then if the person puts on there that they're going to be able to sell, they're going to exit the property at a 6% cap rate. You got to understand that's probably not going to happen because that's not what those class of properties are trading at. That's like, if you're like, why are they accepting, right? Like why would they accept a 6% cap rate when the market says they could get seven? Like that would bring me pause, right? Yes. Yes. And in the document, if I'm buying a property, so I looked at one yesterday for, for a guy who he's trying to, He's trying to compare apples to apples, right? Well, the going in cap rate, which means what am I paying for it, right? The going in cap rate was like four something. It was atrocious. It was a horrible cap rate. Yeah. Well, that makes sense if they're trading at a four and a half percent cap rate. And then there's a value add component to it where you can, you can make the property operate at five and a half or 6%. And it's a really big property. Well, then, you know, that can be a sizable amount of money that you can make the property increase in value. Because you can still trade it at four and a half and you've now made it operate at 6%. So you, that spread is your profit, right? Mm-hmm. 
but the going out, the exit cap rate was barely any different. Yeah. I mean, it was barely any different. And I mean, it's probably going to get really complicated. Was it in uh, a bad so, neighborhood? I mean, like, was no, it? No, it was a beautiful property. It was an absolutely oh. beautiful property. Class A, gorgeous property. Those properties right now do trade at like four and a half, five percent all day oh, long. Okay. Okay. People will buy them, you know, because really large companies are buying them. But yeah. and you would, and then people are like, well, low cap rate that people get, this is why people get confused with cap rates, because if I get a 12% cap rate, they would think that the property is way better. Mm. Well, on numbers, it performs better. But generally speaking, if it's a 12% cap rate property, it's older, lower income. It's not always, but the general rule of thumb, it's not an A-class property if you can buy it at a 12 cap. It's still probably a really good deal at a 12 cap, but you know what I mean? That I'm Cap rates there. confuse people for a myriad of different reasons. And on these, on these offering memorandums, because there's a going in cap rate, and then there's a exit cap rate. People get really thrown off by these things. They think they understand cap rates until they start looking at the two, and then they get really confused about them. But it is those two numbers that can determine what what is the upside potential in the property. Because if I can, if over you know two or three years, I can get the thing from a seven percent cap rate, which is the normal trading rate, up to a ten percent cap rate. Well, then I can sell it potentially at a seven percent cap rate again, but not all of that value I created turns into profit. Yeah. But if your cap rates are almost identical, I got to ask myself, where is the upside? I don't remember. It was like a $52 million deal on a $52 million deal. Man, I mean, you don't need when the numbers are that skinny. They look really, really fat because it's a $52 million deal. So any kind of a move, even if it's a, you know, half a percent move, (laughs) I mean, that can be a lot of money. But there's also the there's the exact same amount of room for error on the other side. And this was going to be a five-year hold on a property with with a very skinny margin. Yeah. Well, what happens if they're not trading at four and a half in five years? What happens if they're at five and a half to six? Well, you're screwed because you paid four and a half. And you may have it operating at five or five and a half now, but you owe all of your investors all of the preferred returns that you told that you promised them. And now you have no exit. You're going to exit break even and you can't pay off your investors, at least their returns. They wouldn't lose money, you know, but yeah. their returns aren't going to be there. You're not going to make any money. Why would you work five years for something that's potentially not even going to be there? And so then I start looking at the cash flow numbers. Well, if you look at the cash flow numbers, they're not there at all because they had A shares and B shares. Between the two shares, it ADA and the debt service, which funny enough, the debt service was not in any of the pro formas. And they didn't put the debt service payment out there. They put the debt terms. So a person would have to go in like I did and figure out what the debt service payment was, add it to the preferred return rates on an annualized basis, and then compare those to the net operating income on an annual basis to see what is going to happen with the cash flow. And for the first three years, there wasn't any. For the first two years, they lost money. And then on the the last two years, they made a little bit of money. So over five years, they made a tiny little bit of profit. Literally all of the returns that they had stacked up in this offering memorandum came from the exit, which was based on a really thin margin. Hmm. And it was based on today's cap rates, but projected five years into the future. Now, that's a scary proposition. And so when you're out looking at the offering memorandums, there's another couple of things that I think are really, really important. The general partners are not in this. uh, They're not a philanthropic company, right? They're in this to make money. Yeah. 
So another one I looked at the other day, they had, this was a massive project over five years. It was, it's basically a complete gut and rebuild of a very large building. I think that the total all in price was somewhere around $30 million, big deal. Hmm. And the general partners were getting 10 or 12% preferred return. And then they were getting no return for the first two years because it was going to take them two years to rebuild everything out. So nobody was getting a dime for the first two years. And then after that, 12% preferred return plus 10 to 12, I can't remember which, plus they were getting 70% of the upside and the general partners were keeping 30. Hmm. Wow. There's only two reasons that I can think of that any general partner will do that amount of work because that is a huge heavy lift. I mean, that is a big, big deal. A humongous project. The only, the only reason I can think of that anyone would do that is that it, they're new and they think they have to, hmm. which is scary enough because you shouldn't be doing that kind of a project if you're new yeah. or they don't know what they're doing, which probably yeah. means they're new. But I don't know any of, of my friends who syndicate any kind of apartment deals on any level that give up that amount. Hmm. None of them do. Yeah. Because, and as a limited partner, you should want your general partners to make money and make a lot of it because they have to be motivated to keep the deal moving forward. Your money is in that deal. And if they're not motivated to make the deal work, well, then what good are they to you as a general partner? <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, at exactly. some point they're gonna be like, I've been in this five years. I've made no freaking money. There's no prospect of me making any money. I'm punting. Yeah. Exactly. People get all twisted up about how much the general partners are making. You should want a fair return, as good of a return as you can reasonably find, but you should want your general partners making a lot of money and you should want that tied to the performance of the property so that they make money only when they increase the value of the property because it makes a safer investment for you. Yeah. Because then everyone makes money. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like a no brainer to me. And you should make sure that the, the money partners, the limited partners should get paid first always. So okay. I think the the things that I think are helpful to take away from this content is that you have an investment that's backed by real estate that is very passive. You're not on the risk of the loan. You get a, a paycheck, usually one a quarterly paycheck, right? And you get some upside when it's sold. I mean, maybe not all deals are structured the same way, obviously, but it's a very passive way of owning real estate. So, yeah. And I think, I mean, we're, we're basically out of time and there's so much more we could talk about with syndications. Maybe we do another, maybe we do yeah. another podcast with it, but, up. Yeah. but suffice to say, there's a lot involved in understanding an offering memorandum and whether or not you should invest in it. The most important piece of all of that is who it is that you're trusting with your money. I mean, that that's the really, if you don't take anything else away from this, that's what you should take away. Vet those people. Yeah. That's why the SEC is involved, right? I mean, it's, yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. You, I mean, most people don't want to go sideways with the SEC. That's true. No. Yeah. Most people don't. Some people are just not scared of anybody. And, you know, because of that, they're <laughs> really, not the, really not the best bet. I don't know any of those people, but there are, there are some of them out there. That's so. true. That's true. Well, this, Heather, I think we should do another one because we should yeah. probably do some one on what to ask a syndicator, right? There's the, I, I think... Yeah. Some people probably got some questions about it from this one, but let's let's probably do that. Until then, if you've been making, if you've been looking at these or whatever, I didn't say anything today so that it would scare you, just so that you guys would understand, because they can be really, really good investments, and mm-hmm. they really are passive. I mean, so if you're looking for something that you don't have to work, Heather, that doesn't. I mean, I 
I was just saying to somebody earlier today, I don't know where you can park your money and make, you know, eight, 10, 12% on your money literally for doing nothing. Yeah. I don't know places you can do that, especially backed by real estate. I, I just don't know where you can do that. Thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you share us with your friends. Continue to, because man, we really appreciate what you've done for us so far. And, you know, give us some comments, send us some feedback, send us some questions, some episodes you'd like us to cover. Invest at rpcinvest.com. I screwed that up last week because you weren't here and I had to fix it. But I think I fixed it in time. I think the email is still get to us. I'm sure somebody, somebody monitors that other email, but that's, you know, anyway. <laughs> All right. Till next time, go out there and make something happen, guys. Thank you. Bye. This has been the Get Real Podcast. To subscribe and for more information, including a list of all episodes, go to getrealestatesuccess.com.